You are listening to a sermon from Covenant Hope Church. Thank you for engaging with us. If you would like more information about our church family, please visit www.covenanthope.church. We pray that this sermon encourages and challenges you today. Well, good morning, Covenant Hope. If you have a Bible, grab it and turn to Genesis chapter 44 and 45. Guess my name is Cody. I'm one of the pastors here and have the opportunity to open up the scriptures for us regularly and love to do so. We're going to continue in our series of the book of Genesis, which we have titled God's Story of Creation to Restoration. If you are a guest this morning, we normally walk through books of the Bible together because we want to know what God has to say. Uh, not particularly what I have to say. And so we come every week and we hear from God's word. And uh, we've been in the book of Genesis for over a year now. And we're coming to the end of the story. And uh, maybe you uh, have come to this place this morning and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. You wouldn't be a believer. And so I hope that you see this place as a place you could come to and see what God is about and see what his people is about and to hear the gospel. And we pray that you would give your life to Christ because of what he has done for us. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one of those black hardcover Bibles in the pew back in front of you and turn to page 39 to follow along with us. We find it hard to forgive because we forget how much we've been forgiven. We find it hard to forgive because we forget how much we've been Forgiven. Church, if I were to ask you, do you find it easy or difficult to forgive, what would you say? Do you find it hard to forgive those who have hurt you? Difficult to reconcile with those whom there is strife and tension. You see, you're not the only one that would struggle with forgiveness. The Apostle Peter, when he was with our Lord, Asked him, Jesus, do we, do we have to forgive others seven times? And Jesus says, no, 70 times seven. And in this story, we see this idea of forgiveness just be centered for us. And so we look here at these two chapters, Genesis 44 and 45. Here's what we see. God's plan of restoration provides the opportunity for Joseph to forgive his brothers and to save them from the family. We've been talking about God's plan for his people that sin entered into the world. But God has been restoring. He's promised to restore things to the way they were before. That we would have a relationship with him. And we've been watching as God's plan has been unfolding in the book of Genesis. But now if you're a Christian today. If you're a follower of Jesus. What does it look like to respond rightly to God's word here in these two chapters. Because God is working in us and our circumstances, we can be forgiven and we can forgive others. Because God is working in our circumstances and in us, we can both be forgiven and forgive others. So as we pick up here in the story, Joseph is probably 39 years old. It's been 22 years since he has seen his father. And last week, his brothers, as Pastor Ryan preached last week, his brothers show up to Egypt and they need food. And he, they go through this, he, he kind of tests them and uh, he puts one of his brothers in prison and they go back and get Benjamin. And once Benjamin gets there, they have this big feast, they party all day. 
And now they're about to head back to Canaan, back to, to Jacob with both Simeon, who was in jail, and now with Benjamin in hand, who Jacob is so worried about. But remember, we've seen throughout the story that God is the main character. God is the one working in this story. And he works through these main actors of Jacob and Joseph. And now we actually will see a, one of the other brothers, Judah, who will be centered as a main character in the story. We're going to be alerted to God's work in the story by two speeches that take place here in these two chapters. One by Judah and one by Joseph. And these speeches remind us of what God is doing in the world, but particularly in his people. And these speeches will show us some beautiful theology about who our God is and what he does. And so this morning, church, because our God is working in us and our circumstances, I want to show you four simple but powerful ways we see God at work in these chapters. Four simple but powerful ways we see God at work in these chapters. So the first simple but powerful way we see God at work is this. God exposes sin. God exposes sin. Look there at verse 1 of chapter 44. Joseph commanded his steward. Now, remember, we pick up in that story. The brothers are about to leave. He's not revealed his identity to them. And he continues this ruse of his to see if his brothers have really changed. He tells his servant, fill the men's bags with as much food as they can carry and put each one's silver on top of his bags. Remember last week they found the silver. They were frightened that they had somehow stolen the silver. But Joseph gives it back to him again. But now put my cup, the silver one, at the top of the youngest one's bag. If you remember, Joseph was sold for 20 shekels of silver. Along with the silver from the grain. So he did as Joseph told him. So Joseph, he's framed Benjamin, the youngest brother. And the brothers get ready, they take off, they leave early in the morning. But before they could get very far, Joseph sends his servant after them. And the servant catches up to them and asks them this question. Why have you repaid evil for good? Hasn't my master been kind to you? Hasn't he done for you and provided food and grain and a feast for you? Has he not shown you mercy? How could you... Repay his good with this evil. That's what this statement means. How could you repay him with evil? And the servant explains, isn't this cup, the cup that my master drinks from and uses for divination? What have you done? Why have you done this wrong? Now the servant must be in on the, on the plan here. He must know uh, the ruse that is happening. He plays his part perfectly. Jo- Joseph doesn't practice divination. That's not how he knows Right? He knows that these are his brothers. So he doesn't need any kind of spirits to help him. But it's God who has been helping him. And we know that Deuteronomy actually forbids uh, divination. So this is just the plan that, that Joseph has laid out for uh, his brothers. And I want you to, to understand that Joseph is recreating Genesis chapter 37, where he was sold into slavery. Maybe the brothers will turn their back on Benjamin like they had on him. Will the brothers think Benjamin is just like Joseph? 
And I'm sure you can imagine the brother's shock at this point. You're like, you've got to be kidding me. What else could come up? Why can't we just get home to our father? And so they say to the servant, we could not possibly do this. Right? They stick together, which is different than what we've seen in the past. And they actually stick to one another's character. They say, no, no, none of us did this. We did not take anything from you. And they're certain of their innocence and that they offer themselves as slaves. And even for the thief to be put to death. And so look down at verse 10. The steward replies, what you have said is right. But only the one who has done this will be my slave. And the rest of you will be blameless. The servant once again plays his part well. He takes, hey, no, we're not, we're not going to kill uh, you. We're not going to take all of you as slaves. But the one who is the thief will take him as our slave. Because the servant knows who it is. It's, it's Benjamin. He set him up. And so now the search begins. And you can think the music starts playing in the background. And it starts beating really, really quickly. Right? And you get to verse 12. The steward searches and they've opened their bags up really quick. We've got nothing to hide here. Beginning with the oldest, Reuben, and ending with the youngest, Benjamin. Uh-oh. Verse 13. They found it in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and each one loaded his donkey and returned to the city. The brothers are devastated that, that this silver cup is in Benjamin's sack. What do they do? They Notice they all tear their clothes. All the brothers do. Moses is a masterful storyteller. Do you remember what happened when Joseph was sold into slavery? Who was the first one to tear his clothes? It was Reuben. When they give the coat back to their father that they bloodied up and he comes to his own conclusion that Joseph was dead, what what does Jacob do? He rips his clothes and mourns and weeps for his son. And so all the brothers do this. They weep. Church family, I... I want you to notice that these brothers do not revile Benjamin. All the evidence points to Benjamin at this point. They they don't scold him. They don't yell at him. They don't turn their back, back on him. What do they do? They weep. They weep. I heard Pastor DeWayne, who's, who's the open door, he said this, the most appropriate response to sin is grief. It's grief. That we would be just so broken by our sin and other people's sin that we are grieved by it. A very common response is anger. And although there are appropriate times to be angry about sin, the most appropriate response always is grief and to be broken by it. And the Apostle Paul reminds us at the end of Ephesians 4, Be angry and do not sin. Church, we should be grieved by sin, but not letting that the anger turned into bitterness. And so now Joseph has set his, his test up. The real test begins now. Will they abandon Benjamin and go back to Canaan like nothing happened? Will they tell their father that, you know, Benjamin was, he got ill on the way back? No, they go back to Egypt. They stand together in unity. And look at verse 14. When Judah... Now, Judah's going to be moved forward in the story, as I told you earlier, like last week. But why? Why is this happening? Judah is becoming the spokesman or the leader of the family. 
and his brothers reached Joseph's house. He was still there. They fell to the ground before him. Now, don't skip this statement. It's really important. Remember what Joseph dreamed. That all of his brothers and his family would bow down before them. And so they come knowing that Joseph could wipe them out just off the face of the planet. No one would, would do anything about it. And they come and they prostrate themselves. They bow down and get on their knees before Joseph. God is working in these circumstances. Even back in Genesis 37 when Joseph had the dream from the Lord. Now is that time where his family is bowing down to him. And Joseph says in verse 15, what have you done? He continues the ruse and the question, didn't you know like a man like me could uncover the truth by divination? And now Judah, he stands up and he speaks for his brothers. What can we say to my Lord, uh, sir, this, this formal title? What can we say to you? How can we plead? How can we justify ourselves? How can we make this right? But look at what Judah identifies as the person that has identified their sin. He says, God has exposed your servant's iniquity. God has exposed your servant's iniquity. We are now, my Lord, slaves, both we and the one in possession of this cup. Now remember, we've been seeing this throughout the stories. We cannot read these stories as just plain narratives with moral application. Right? No, God is the one working. It is God who has exposed sin. God is the one who's providing an opportunity for Judah to actually confess that sin now. When I was young, I was actually, I was actually in daycare. I, I had to be right before kindergarten. I, I, had, I had stolen a block from the daycare. And uh, I didn't think much about it, to be honest with you. I, I took it. And I took it home and I was playing with it. And my dad said, where'd you get that block at? I, 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 I don't know. You know, like I, and I, and I said, I, I got it from, from daycare. And uh, he said, you know, we, uh, we, had a, we had a long conversation at that point. I don't really remember what he said. But what I do remember, he, he made me go back the next day and not just put it back. He made me show the teacher and say, I, I, I took this home with me yesterday. I stole this, and I'm returning it back, and I'm sorry. And so just like my dad gave me the opportunity to actually confess the sin, not just put it back and move on, God is doing the same thing here for Judah and his brothers. He's exposing this for them. He wants them to see that he is working. The irony here, though, is that they've done nothing wrong in this instance. Right, especially Benjamin. Benjamin didn't was nowhere near the brothers when they sold Joseph into slavery. And as we saw last week, the brothers' guilt, it reminds them of their sin against Joseph. And this is God's grace to them to expose sin. Church, our God is gracious when he exposes our sin. Gracious to us. But oftentimes we're not really ready to, to confront that sin. And so we need to cultivate hearts that are ready to confront our sin when it's exposed by God. And so look at verse 17. The, the brothers, you know, Judah's ready to confess, but he doesn't know he can get forgiveness. Verse 17, then Joseph said, I swear that I will not do this. The man whose possession the cup was found will be my slave. So Benjamin's going to be my slave. The rest of you can go in peace to your father. 
Now, when we started, the thief would, would die and the rest would be slaves. But now only the thief will be the slave. Only Benjamin will be. It would probably have been better for them all to be slaves. They're probably thinking, we can't go back to our father. He, we can't go back. We can't destroy him. We all, we, you know, take us as your slaves. The church, we see here, God is working in our circumstances. Forgiveness must be preceded by exposed sin. And when that happens, are we willing and ready to confess and confront that sin? Are we willing and ready to do that? So we've seen God work powerfully by exposing sin. But the second way we see God simply but powerfully working is that God changes hearts. God changes hearts. We're going to now see Judah take a huge step forward in both the story and also the biblical narrative. And his development as a son of not just Jacob, but Abraham. This speech is the climax pointing us to the story. Look at verse 18. But Judah approached him and said, My Lord, please let your servant speak personally to my Lord. Do not be angry with your servant, for you are like Pharaoh. Basically, Judah knows that Joseph could have him killed or thrown into prison on the spot, and no one would bat an eye. But little does Judah know that this is his brother Joseph, who heard his callous words back in Genesis chapter 37. Let's just sell the boy. Just sell him. What can we make off of him? And now Judah comes. And in these verses, verses 19 through 31, Judah arranges this beautiful plea for Benjamin. And he summarizes the past events. He tries to show how important Benjamin is to the family, and particularly to his father Jacob. Judah reminds Joseph that it was, it was Joseph who started asking questions. You asked us if we had a family. You asked us if we had a brother, and now you're using it against us. And he explains in verse 20, the other son, the other brother of Benjamin, Rachel's son, he's dead. And our father has lost him. And their father loves Benjamin so much. He remembers the loss of his son Joseph. And if Benjamin doesn't return, Jacob would surely die. We see there in verse 22. And their father, he wouldn't even, remember, he wouldn't let Benjamin go at first, right? He's like, no, Benjamin can't go. We're going to leave Simeon in prison. Benjamin cannot go. And Judah steps up and he says, I will I will be responsible for Benjamin. And so Judah's like, hey, I've put myself on the line for him. And then Joseph lets him go. But notice here, church, that Joseph sees how much Jacob loves Benjamin. But maybe more importantly, he sees that his father remembers him. He sees that his father remembers him. 22 years later, his father still thinks about him. And so Judah has now become accountable for Benjamin. And this emboldened speech by Judah ultimately ends where we would have never thought. Right? I mean, just think back to Genesis 38, 37. Right? It was his idea to sell Joseph. Remember how Judah treated Tamar and his sons. Look at verse 33. Judah says, now please let your servant remain here. As my Lord's slave. Take me. In place of the boy. And let him go back with his brothers. 
For how can I go back to my father without the boy? I cannot bear to see the grief that would overwhelm my father. I want you to notice the change in this man, church. That just a few weeks ago, we preached it through Genesis 30, and we saw the, the man who, who wanted just his own personal desires. He was driven by personal gain. But this is the opposite of, these cha- of those chapters. Right? Judah is compassionate and empathetic. He feels what his father would feel if Benjamin didn't come home. And it, it drives him to action. It drives him to action. Notice, he doesn't resent Jacob, his father, for favoring Benjamin. Right? It, it's gone. You know? In reality, it's this reality that provokes him to love. Anyways, despite that, church noticed that the source of bitterness for Judah and his brothers has now become a source of compassion. A source of compassion. When we allow bitterness to take hold of our hearts, we are stripped away of the ability to be compassionate on those who have hurt us. And maybe some of the closest people in our lives. Don't give in to bitterness, but ask the Lord to provide compassion and empathy for you. Why? Because now Judah knows what it means to be a sacrificial leader. Judah's willing to jeopardize all of his ambition, all of his dreams, his family, everything. Take me, put me in prison. All for the sake of his father. In this speech here, in these verses, the word father is used 14 times. Despite Jacob's favoritism, clearly seen in verses 27, Judah puts his life on the line. He offers himself for the sake of his father and for the sake of Benjamin. Why? Because he loves them. He loves them. Judah is offering himself his life instead of Benjamin. Judah is becoming that royal redeeming figure which will be very important for his family, his descendants, his sons, all the way to David and all the way to Jesus. You see, redemption is such an important aspect of our salvation. Redemption is this idea of a a, a person being purchased through for their good but given freedom. They're actually purchased so that they can actually have freedom. Normally it's used in context of slavery. Someone must pay the ransom price for them to be set free. And the concept of redemption will become extremely important, not just in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament. Right? Moses, God tells him, I will redeem my people from Egypt. Boaz, remember with Ruth, he will be a kinsman redeemer. And Jeremiah will proclaim that there will be a Messiah in which God will redeem his people from sin. And then the New Testament picks up on this too. And it kind of uses two words for it. You have this idea of ransom, but also redeeming or redemption. Or you know what a ransom is. Someone comes and they're in danger, so you pay for them to be ransomed back. You get them back. And redemption, it has this idea of you would go into a marketplace and you would pay the price for that item and you would able, be able to take it out of the market. Right? It's also, again, this idea you could go into a market and buy a slave in those days and you could buy them, redeem them, so they could have freedom. And Paul uses this word in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. He says, in him we have redemption through his blood. 
the forgiveness of our trespasses. Paul says again in Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. So Paul picks up on this language of redemption. Why? Because like Judah, but so much better, Jesus goes to the cross to pay our sin debt, to pay our ransom, to redeem our lives from sin and brokenness. Jesus broke the power of death and sin and now offers us life to live freely for him to anyone who would submit their life to him. The same power that rose Jesus from the grave is now offered to us. The same power that's been at work in Judah's life is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is now the power that works in us, you and me, so that we can be changed. This is why we talk about making mature disciples, because we believe that the gospel is not just something that gets us into heaven. It's something that makes us look more like Jesus. It's that we are becoming transformed into the image of Jesus through the power of the gospel. We really believe that, that you can change, that you can be different, that God changes hearts permanently through Jesus Christ. And church, I know Many of you are fighting sin desperately. You are fighting hard. You can experience this kind of transformation. You can experience this kind of change. But church, notice, Judah's not the only one that's changed in this situation. Look at chapter 45, verse 1. And Joseph could no longer keep his composure in front of all of his attendants. Remember, Joseph has been trying to figure out, hey, are my brothers any different? Are they, have they been changed? And so he called out, send everyone away. No one was with him, and he revealed his identity to his brothers. Verse 2, but he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it, and also Pharaoh's household heard it. You could see the dam that was holding back this emotion for Joseph. It just, it just crumbles, and all of it comes out. He's like, I'm Joseph, and he weeps. Before them, Judah's selfless act and love for their father pushes them over the edge. I mean, think about it. This has been a complete undoing of Genesis chapter 37. That Judah would offer himself into slavery. And Joseph is so convinced of their hard chain, he finally tells them who he is. He says, I am Joseph. I am your brother. And so God doesn't just change those of us who are struggling with sin. God changes those of us who have been deeply wounded by other people. Deeply wounded by other people. You see, the church is a place that God brings us to heal us. To help us look more like His Son to experience this kind of change. Both Judah and Joseph experience changed hearts. And so we've seen God work in us and our circumstances to expose sin and change hearts. But what happens when God changes hearts? What happens when God changes hearts? We see that this third simple but powerful way God works. He, he reconciles relationships. God reconciles relationships. You know what it feels like to confess sin. You know what it feels like to get it out in the open. You know what it feels like when someone confesses that they've hurt you and owns up to that. You know what it feels like to be changed. And in this moment, for 
Joseph and his family. You can probably imagine what the brothers are feeling right now. Look down there at verse 3 again. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. He says, is my father still living? But look there. But they could not answer him because they were terrified. I mean, this is, this is the true climax of the story. Joseph could have them killed right now. No one would ever know. Nothing would change. He has all that power. But look at what Joseph does. He reassures them, verse 4. Then Joseph said to his brothers, please come near to me. And they came near. I am Joseph, your brother. He said, the one you sold into slavery. You can imagine the emotion of this embrace. You can imagine the, the shock that Joseph is alive. You can imagine the very fact that, that Joseph would embrace his brothers, those who sold him, the ones who sinned against him so grievously. And that he noticed, church, that in this moment, Joseph chooses to forgive his brothers and to not repay them with evil. I want you to think back all the way to the start of Genesis. Right? God makes a beautiful world. He makes it perfect. Adam and Eve sin. They have two sons. It doesn't take very long. What, what happens to those sons? Cain kills Abel. Cain kills Abel. And so sin begins to, to actually tear apart the family. The people of God begin to fight one another. And, it, and it, not, it doesn't just stop with Cain and Abel. It keeps going with Isaac and Ishmael and Jacob and Esau. And now Jacob, uh, Joseph with his brothers. But church notice, Joseph breaks the pattern. Joseph breaks the pattern. Joseph overcomes the wickedness of Genesis chapter 4. How? By forgiving those who sinned against him. But why can Joseph truly forgive them? Look there at verses 5 through 8. It gives us Joseph's perspective on why he can even do this. It shows us that God is the one who's at work in us and in our circumstances. To reconcile, verse 5, and now don't be grieved or angry with yourselves for selling me here. I mean, what a powerful word to his brothers. Don't be angry with yourselves. Why? Three reasons. Because God sent me ahead of you to preserve life. Verse 6, for the famine has, famine has been in this land for two years, and there's going to be five more years. God sent me here to, to save you. Verse 7, God sent me ahead of you to establish a remnant within the land and keep you alive by great deliverance. You see, God knew that the famine was going to be bad. God knew that you couldn't survive in Canaan. And God sent me here so that I could keep you alive and preserve you and actually have a remnant of people who would now, in the future, be able to leave Egypt and be God's people, Israel. The third reason, verse 8, therefore it was... Not you who sent me. It was God. He made me a father to Pharaoh. He made me the one at Pharaoh's right hand to give advice to him. The Lord of his entire household and ruler over all of Egypt. And Joseph was enabled to forgive because he knew that God was working in his circumstances. He had learned during his slavery his imprisonment, and even his exaltation, that God was sovereign and fully in control of all things, including the worst day of his life, where his brothers turned their back on him and they sold him into slavery. 
God was in control. And Joseph exercises his faith in God. And he holds to that faith both in difficulty and success. Church, we like Joseph should exercise that faith in God and forgive our enemies and those even closest to us who sin and hurt us. We should exercise faith in God and forgive them. Forgiveness is a bridge to reconciliation. Right? God is he's the one that's kind of orchestrated. He's built this bridge for them to now walk together. God has done this. And remember, God is he's done the same thing for you and me to be reconciled to him. That he sent Christ into the world for us. Now all we have to do is to to submit our lives to Jesus. Because God has worked in our lives to forgive us, we can forgive others. Right? Because Joseph knows that God has worked in his life, he forgives those brothers of his. Church family, are there people in your life that you're withholding forgiveness from? Are there people in your life that you say, I'll never be reconciled to them? Because if you are, if you're refusing that, you're telling God that he's not big enough, he's not strong enough, he's not powerful enough to reconcile those relationships. Church, for Christians, there's no place for unforgiveness or not being willing to be reconciled. Pastor Ryan has helped me grow in this idea because the New Testament it makes no case for us to ever not forgive. Even if they don't want to be reconciled, we must forgive Colossians 3.12 says, Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a grievance against you. Forgiveness is powerful. Right, look at what it's done. Look what it's given Joseph. It's given his brother, his brother's back. He's like, hey, is my father alive? Go get him. I want to see him. Bring him back here so I can provide for you. So I can care for you. And so that you can live. We have a big land. We have enough area for you to live in. Bring him here. Bring everyone here. Look at verse 10. You can sit on the land of Goshen and be near me. Now we don't know where the land of Goshen actually is. But it seems to be this lush, beautiful area that was in Egypt. He says, you, your children, your grandchildren, your flocks, your herds, all you have, bring them all. Get everything and bring it here. Look at verse 13. Tell my father about my glory in Egypt and all that you have seen. Bring my father here quickly to me. You can imagine this this excitement that Joseph has. And in verse 14, then Joseph threw his arms around his brother Benjamin and wept. He wept on his shoulder. And Joseph kissed his brother and wept, and afterward his brother, t- brothers talked with him. Don't miss that last part of verse 15. Remember when Joseph would tell his dreams to his brothers? Remember when he would come and tell them that, you know, the second dream? It says that they couldn't even speak a peaceable word to him. Well, now God has reconciled this relationship. They can talk. They're embracing. They're weeping together. We've seen God simply but powerfully work in this family's life by exposing sin, by changing hearts, and by reconciling relationships. 
But why does God do this? Why does God do this? Brings us to our fourth way God works. Because God keeps promises. God keeps promises. Look there. Pharaoh, he he hears about this. This is what Casey read for us earlier. He, He hears about what was going on. How they were reconciled. About Joseph's father. And so Pharaoh, he gets ready to put on a party too. Look at verse 17. Pharaoh said to Joseph, tell your brothers, do this, load your animals and go back to the land of Canaan. Get your father and your families, come back to me. I will give you the best land of Egypt. And you can eat from the riches of the land. Pharaoh is going to actually provide for them something that God said he would do. God is the one that provides land for his people. And Pharaoh says, you can, you can, have, our, you can have this best land. Look at verse 20. Do not be concerned about your belongings, but the best of the land of Egypt is yours. Don't bring, you don't have to bring all the little stuff. You don't have to you bring yourselves and your cattle and your livestock. You bring those things. Everything else, just leave it behind in Canaan. We'll provide for you. And so they load up and they get ready. But notice, Joseph, what he does in verse 22. He gave each of his brothers a change of clothes. But he gave Benjamin 300 pieces of silver and five changes of clothes. Do you remember? Those brothers ripped that coat off of Joseph. And now true reconciliation fashion, Joseph gives them each clothes, a coat. That he loves them and he's reconciled to them. And, he, and just to be safe, he gives Benjamin five coats. <laughs> and he gives him 300 pieces of silver. There's no strife. There's no animosity. There's no bitterness. They're restored. God keeps his promises. They are truly reconciled. Verse 23, he sent his father the following 10 donkeys, carrying products of the best of Egypt, and 10 female donkeys carrying grain, food, and provisions for his father on their journey. And verse 24, so Joseph sent his brothers on their way. And as they were leaving, he said to them, I know you. Do not argue on the way back. Do not argue. I want to see my father, so don't get in trouble on the way back. You get there and get back, and don't you say a word to each other. That's basically what he does to them. Be here. Get here. I want to see my father. And so they went up to Egypt, out of Egypt to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan, and looked there at verse 26. They said, Joseph is still alive. I mean, what, what? What a powerful statement that you've not seen your son in 22 years and you think he's dead. Joseph is alive. Very much like what we saw in Genesis 22 when Isaac comes back down the mountain. This is the idea of resurrection, that Joseph is alive. And not only that, he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And Moses writes, Jacob was stunned. Literally, he's numb to to the... like you. You can think about now that, that Jacob is remembering all the, all the times of suffering and, and crying and weeping over his son. And now it's like, he's alive. He's alive. He didn't even believe them. But when Judah told them, hey, this, jo- Joseph is alive. Right there at the end of verse 27, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. That Joseph was now given a reason to live and to go to Egypt. My son is still alive. I'm going to go see him before I die. Again, almost like this resurrection type power. 
that Joseph is there and he's alive. And so church, notice here that God has indeed kept his promises. Right? What, what promises has God made to his people? Well, all the way back in Genesis chapter 12, God promised Abraham people. When he didn't have any children, he promised him people. And you have these brothers and you have their wives and his family and God has kept his promise. That God would give Abraham's sons. He would make him into a great nation despite all the sin, despite all the brokenness. And they're, and they're going to be together. Despite their own sin, despite their own family tension, they're going to be together. But notice they're going to be in the land. Not the promised land. But a land that's very similar, it seems, to all the way back to the first couple chapters to Eden. That this land of Goshen has everything that you need to be provided for. Despite the famine, despite the brokenness in the world, God has provided a land for God's people to live. And possessions, protection. Right? Yes, it's Pharaoh who's providing this, but it's God who is in control who is orchestrating these events. That God is the one that prepares all of this for his people. You see, church, this story has taught us that God is graciously working in both our circumstances and in our lives. We see him expose sin, change hearts, reconcile relationships, and keep promises. But the story doesn't end there. The story doesn't end there. We know that this family, they will live. We know that they will then be put in slavery, but God will powerfully remove them from Egypt and then they will become his people. And God wants to be with them and dwell with them, but sin, they can never quite get over that. And sin continues to to keep them separated. But if you look back here at verse 5 of chapter 45, we see Joseph make this statement. Look there. God sent me ahead of you to preserve life. It was the same reason, if you remember, that God called Noah to build the ark. He was going to preserve life. Why? Because he was going to send judgment on the world. But notice the difference here. God doesn't save his people here through judgment. He does it through forgiveness. So now the solution to human sin will be forgiveness and not just judgment alone. You see, it's through this people, Jacob's family, the people of Israel, that the Messiah would come. Judah, the man who would lay down his life for his brother Benjamin, would have a great, 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 great grandson who would lay down his life literally on the cross in our place, pay for our sin, who did offer his life in our place. You see, God chose to forgive us, but only through the self-sacrifice of his son, Jesus. In Christ, God's wrath was fully poured out on sin, on Jesus, in our place. But because Christ was perfect, he was able to take our punishment, be killed, put to death in a tomb, but then be raised three days later. Thus offering us forgiveness and life. He is able to redeem and restore us. Jesus is able to overcome the human problem through forgiveness. You see, church, in Christ, we have 
been forgiven. And therefore we can forgive others. Remember Peter's question. Jesus, how, how often do we have to forgive? Well, Jesus, he gives a parable. He gives a story. Or Jesus tells a story of this king who had this servant who had, had racked up this really, really high debt. The Bible, the, the word that Jesus used here, is it says that this guy owes a debt that's unpayable. I mean, literally, 200,000 years worth of work. 200,000 years worth of work. And he comes before the king and he grovels and he, and he pleads, have mercy on me. And what does the king do? He forgives him. He forgives him of, of that debt that he would, he could work 200,000 years. They would never be able to pay it. And you see how wonderfully gracious and kind this king is to forgive. But what does that servant go do? Just 15 minutes later, he finds one of the guys that owes him a day's worth of work. And he throws him into, into prison. He throws him into prison. He forgot very quickly of how much he had been forgiven. Church, we have two options. Who do you want to be like? A forgiving king or an unforgiving servant? Because in Christ, we have truly been forgiven an unpayable debt. Pray with me. God in heaven, we proclaim the glories of our Lord who came and died on the cross in our place, who came to reconcile and redeem us through a perfect life, lived to your law, your standard. And God, I pray that if there's anyone in this room that doesn't know you, that they would accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. They would submit their lives to him. But God, I also pray that we would be a church that is so in all of how you work in our lives that we trust you and that we forgive those who hurt us and who sin against us. That we would be a people who demonstrate like the story of this king who forgave an un, unpayable debt. That we would, our forgiveness would point to your own forgiving of us. That people would see the gospel and how we forgive. God, you are working in our lives in so many ways we don't even see it. And so, God, would we recognize, would you give us grace to recognize those places? Would we help each other see those places too? And, God, would, would you ultimately be glorified through your people as we live out this beautiful gospel of forgiveness? We ask this in Jesus' name and by the power of the Spirit. Amen.